0: Welcome back in this part 2 episode on scientific literature. Professor Aaron Frazier and I are going to look at how we would actually approach reading a scientific paper. It's not as simple as going from the beginning to the end. So I guess the important question then is, if you were if I was to hand you a scientific article or you know give you one of mine to read because I know you read everything I write Erin. <laughs> if I handed you a, a paper Mm -hmm. The big question that I get from students and it's an interesting one is, do you start at the beginning and read to the end or do you do something different?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I get that question from students as well um because it certainly is kind of what we're trained to do as readers when we're presented with something and, and certain is to start at the beginning and go to the end and certainly there are lots of documents for which that is absolutely the main way that you would want to read it like i'm i'm picturing buying a mystery novel and choosing not to read it from the beginning to the end <laughs> um we're very much trained to do that but actually i think I, I would hazard a guess that most people who regularly read articles or manuscripts that are within the scientific literature probably don't typically do that. Okay, so
0: what would you read first?
1: Yeah, so probably the first thing I would read, like, I guess what I'm thinking is um, I find myself reading in a couple of different contexts, the the scientific literature. So um, sometimes I'm just doing it to try to stay current and learn new things. So I'm seeing that, you know, a journal has published a new issue and there are a list of articles in it. So like, maybe I'll choose to read some and not others. So I might be making the choice to read for that reason, or I might be really actively on the hunt, right? Like I might be planning a project Or writing my own manuscript where I need to see what other things have happened so that I can reference that work and what I'm writing, in which case I might be like using databases through the library to track down literature that is relevant to what I'm doing. In both cases, the first thing that I'm going to see is the title right away. um, I'm going to see what is hopefully a relatively descriptive title, descriptive enough that I get an idea of what the work is about, and then I also am going to see the abstract. Oftentimes, if you're actively on the hunt for literature, so like if you're using a database, often if you, you see a list of potential journal articles, you'll just see the titles, but if you click on the title, what you'll see is the title and the abstract. So that gives you a chance to read the title, read the abstract, and then decide like, yes, this is something that I want to go ahead with, or no, I'm not going to read this right now. It's not, it's not what I'm looking for. So title and abstract right away. Um and like you said, it's kind of the preview for the paper. It gives you an idea of what you're going to um what you're going to find.
0: Do you have a, a next step that you would go to? Here it's
1: where I, I think what I do would really depend on why I was doing the reading and the extent to what what I what I was reading is within my field. So I think if I'm reading something that is in a field that I'm really familiar with, I'm probably not going to start with the first sentence of the introduction and just work my way linearly through it because if we think about what the introduction is for, it you know it provides a lot of background provides a lot of context. And I might kind of be pretty familiar with that information already if if I'm reading something within my own field. So this is not to say that I'll never read it. And in fact, I would like to point out that in fact, If I'm using a paper, I will definitely read the whole thing eventually. But the first thing that I'll do as I'm sort of just going through it to see what's going on is I might go to the end of the introduction and check out that statement of purpose, research question, objectives, hypothesis, predictions, that kind of thing. So that will really help me to see what the study was all about. And then I find that I often will go and look at some of the the figures that are associated with the results. And like you were saying earlier, often figures with their captions are designed so that they can stand alone. Even if you haven't read the whole paper, you are able to look at the figure, read the caption, and already get a snapshot of probably some of the most important take-home messages from the study. So I might have a look at some of the figures in the results. And then I often find it's really very handy. Like we talked about how many discussion sections do start with a, a statement that highlights the main points or the main important points from the paper. And I'll often read the beginning part of the discussion because that's often where the authors will explain what they think are the most important take home messages from their work and the same with the the conclusions at the end are also often a a good place to start i wouldn't want to stop with reading those things if i was wanting to really use the manuscript or the paper in a meaningful way like if i wanted to cite it or or plan my own work building on on that work but in terms of just like trying to figure out what is this paper about those are the places i would look first
0: I think I'm remarkably similar. So abstract, and then probably figures to see what they found. And then I might go back to that last paragraph of the introduction. Uh, yeah. So I think I do the same thing. I think it's really counterintuitive to say, well, I just randomly pick these paragraphs and I read them out of order yes. when yes. somebody yes. has sat down and planned a paper in a particular order. But I, I totally agree with you that it, it, you don't have to read them from beginning to end you can jump around in a paper with the bit you need. And interestingly, neither one of us said methods, because I almost never read the methods until the very end. What is the story you're telling me? What is it that I want to take home from this paper? Later on, I'll go figure out how you did it. But that's probably less interesting to me than whatever conclusion you've drawn.
1: And the other thing that, um, honestly, it's funny, you were saying that Oh, you find people are not necessarily all that interested in the literature cited or the references section, because I often find that I I can spend quite a bit of time, especially if I'm just getting familiarizing myself by doing reading within a field I maybe don't know as well. I may spend a lot of time looking at the literature cited section of some papers because they can help me to see the scope of work that already exists. And I can see if I've missed any really important contributions as I'm trying to do my own little survey of of whatever little area of a field that I'm trying to learn about. Um, So I find the literature cited section could be really, really useful in that respect.
0: I agree with you. And I would definitely go there looking for more information on a topic. If the article I'm reading has felt it was important enough to link it to some other article, then that one might be key to me as well. Although you can't really read it. It's not like text you can read. It's more like a treasure hunt trying to find the bit inside that's important. I feel like
1: all of the things we've talked about so far... That's how I would approach something like a a practitioner within my field where I'm trying to figure out what is something about, how does it relate to other work I've read, maybe other things that I've done. Does it seem like it's going to fit with the thing that I'm writing right now? I would say that if I'm coming at a journal article in sort of a more of a a, a naive headspace, like I really don't know much about it. I really don't know much about the field. If I am just reading to be interested and to learn more, I might be more inclined to read it the way that it just the way that it's been presented. Because I, I probably will find that introductory information really useful, um, because I maybe don't necessarily know the background, the terms, the knowledge gaps, the context, depending on the perspective from which you're coming to do the reading, as well as why you're doing the reading and what your background knowledge is for me anyways really impact how i go at something
0: i think the i think the last thing i want to ask is is it this moment of like total honesty here which is when you're <laughs> reading an article i don't know about you but i often run into words i don't know oh, for sure yeah. um topics i've never heard of i think there may be this assumption that we don't struggle to read these things mm-hmm. Is it true of you, too, that you're always looking stuff up? I mean, I oh, go- yes. I Google words all the time to find yes. out. What, what does that word mean? I've never heard that before.
1: Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. I'm always having to look things up. And often I'll find myself Googling um like methods as well, or statistical techniques, if they're not ones that I've used. Yeah, often you need to do a fair amount of legwork to really understand what you've read. I think what is behind that is that there's a lot of emphasis in scientific writing on being very succinct. So unlike some other forms of writing where it might be a little bit more wordy, there might potentially be more descriptions of terms or that there just may not be space for that in in these articles. And I know from the perspective of writing these kinds of articles, there's often, you know, a lot of thought goes into how you write them and what you say to make them as broadly understandable as possible to your audience. But nonetheless, there, I'm sure, are still things that need to be looked up.
0: Oh, yeah. I I learned a word last night reading an article, which is, but I think that's important is that we we don't just read them and understand them. We might have to read them two or three times for different levels of detail. One last question is, is not to to go into detail on this, but there's a totally different kind of paper that you'll find in the same journal. And it's the confusing bit. So what we've been talking about is what we call primary literature. It's the actual experiment, the method and the result written by the people who did the methods and the results. There's another kind of paper that appears in the same journals, which is not really primary literature. It's called a review. What is a review paper and what might it be useful for? So review papers usually are
1: trying, their objective, their reason for being is that the authors are bringing together and reading and summarizing and synthesizing information from ideally all the literature within the scope of whatever it is that they've written their review about. Sometimes reviews are, the way they're done is extremely rigorous, like sometimes they actually will have a little method section where the authors will say, you know, the way we found papers to include in this review is we went on these databases and searched these terms and um, and any paper that came up, we read it and um, have extracted information from it or have summarized it. Sometimes they're a little less rigorous Than that, like they they might not necessarily have those specific methods, but the idea or the sentiment of them is that still they are bringing together a big quantity of literature within a a section of a field, and usually the paper in its entirety does provide a summary. Um, So there often is just a lot of information that is just summarizing the main take-home messages from all of these different studies, but there usually is a synthesis component to a review as well. So the idea there is that in reviewing and reading all of this literature, the authors of the review um, may find that certain information is starting to emerge from reading many, many studies. So they might start to see that many of these studies are having similar findings, or in fact, maybe not at all. Like maybe it's all over the place. People are finding all sorts of different things, or maybe there are big knowledge gaps. Like maybe there's a lot of research in one part of the field and not very much in another. And so these are the kinds of things that you can say if you're looking at all sorts of different papers within that field. And sometimes these assertions are backed by data. Like sometimes when people do a review, they'll actually try to collect a specific types of data from every paper that they read. And then they can, they can summarize those in a table or even in a figure. It does sort of provide like just a state of the field at this moment in time. So um, it can serve as a a way as a vehicle to inspire people to do research in different directions like oh this is also interesting that people have found this but we really don't know about this or here's a here's a knowledge gap that could be addressed so that can be really useful for the authors and also for the people who read the paper. I also find for myself if I'm just starting to learn about an area for the first time a review paper can be an excellent thing to read because the whole point of it was to bring together most or all of the relevant literature about a specific topic and summarize it. So it's kind of like your one stop shop, for lack of a better word, um, to get you started on learning about a new topic. Also, if that's where a literature cited section can be really, really useful, if you go, if it's a recent review paper, and you look at the literature cited section, you can find a pretty comprehensive list of studies that are relevant to whatever the topic of interest is. Off the top of my head, those are the the main functions of a review.
0: Can you think of others? No, I was gonna say the same thing. It's usually where I start. If it's a Topic mm-hmm. that I want to learn about that's really yeah. new to me, I'll look for a review paper first because mm-hmm. they're probably going to summarize huge portions of the literature and save me time reading mm-hmm. um, to do that work for me. Have you ever written one? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah, me too. They're they're hard work.
1: <laughs> they are hard work, actually. Yeah, i mean, Anytime I do it, actually, by the time I'm done, I think, wow, <laughs> that was. <laughs> usually, it ends up with their with me having made an Excel spreadsheet with rows and rows, where every row
0: is summarizing a different paper. Okay, thank you very much, Aaron. Um, I always ask this question when I'm talking to people doing this: How did you become a professor, and was that what you intended?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So how did I become a professor? Well, I actually, uh, for those of you who are listening to this, so Dr. Claire and I go way back. We've known each other for close to 20 years now. And we actually met because we were both students doing research in Dr. Brock Fenton's lab at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. And I did both my master's degree and my PhD at Western University. I also worked with Dr. Fred Longstaff. I finished my PhD at Western, and the whole time that I was doing the research component of my graduate work, I also was really working hard to develop my university teaching skills. I really love teaching. It's um, something I've enjoyed my whole life, and I was very lucky at Western because I was able to work in their Teaching Support Center there, where I did a lot of training on techniques and strategies for teaching in higher education. Um, I was involved in the teaching assistant training program there. And so my goal at the end of my PhD was I really was hoping to get a, a position as an assistant professor. And I was particularly hoping to work at an institution that had positions where there was a fair bit of undergraduate teaching involved. That's something I've always been interested in and that I was really looking for. So I was really excited to see a a job posting at Grenfell Campus, which is where I currently work, for a position. They were looking for a vertebrate biologist who could have a research program, but who also would do quite a bit of teaching each year. Um, And I applied for that position. And in retrospect, no, I was really fortunate um, because I, I was able to get that position fairly shortly after I finished my PhD, and I've been there ever since.
0: Thanks again to Professor Aaron Frazier for joining us on the Bio Audio Podcast for this two-part episodes on how to read scientific literature. This has been a presentation of the Bio Audio podcast. I started Bio audio as a live Q&A session with the class when they had questions that were outside my area of expertise. Over the course of a few years, live sessions became some recorded sessions, and then a hosted interview, and then some audio files for the class. At the request of some of my students, I made them public as a podcast so they could more easily listen on their phones. I was not prepared for how enthusiastic the class was, and a few episodes soon became a dozen, and then enough to provide a free alternative to traditional textbook readings. The goal is to learn through interviewing experts and former students, and to make an alternative free and more inclusive resource. We are not perfect, but we're learning as we go. If you have enjoyed this episode, particularly if you are a student, leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on X at doctor underscore bat underscore girl, on Mastodon at profbatgirl at ecoevo.social or bluesky at profbatgirl.bsky.social, where I post new episodes and new news from my research lab. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation of the Bioaudio podcast.